Hey, everybody. Okay, this is a bonus episode. This is extra. If 15 minutes of Parsha a week is not enough for you, if you're jonesing for more Parsha, then you, you may know that I teach a weekly Parsha class here at ICAR in Los Angeles every Thursday at noon uh, Pacific time. You're welcome. Um, we've got folks joining us virtually from places as far away as Japan on, on Zoom. And uh, we've been archiving video edits of the classes on YouTube, but we thought that might not be able to fit a midday class on a Thursday into your schedule. So I hope you enjoy listening to these as much as I enjoy teaching them. Um, if you're interested to attend the class from wherever you are in the world in person, then stick around at the end of the podcast. I'll tell you how to register. Um, just like the podcast, it's absolutely free and we'd love to have you. Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Um, I'm. Uh, you can see I don't have my books behind me. I'm uh, doing some traveling and teaching um, and uh, grateful to be able to teach this class wherever I am. So, uh, so happy to happy to see familiar faces. I feel a little bit back home. Um, I, yeah, I want to I want to start uh, with the thing that I, I think is at the forefront of um, a lot of people's uh, consciousness today, and certainly mine, um, which is the the, uh, the murder of of um, of nineteen children and and um, and their teachers in Texas, um, and um, we're. Um, we're going to be on topic for that today. Uh, we're going to talk about things that are relevant to that today, um, but also, and I and I and I want us to, and I want us to do that intentionally and deliberately. And and I believe, I really do believe, um, that that our tradition has 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 something to teach us, um, and has thought about violence. Um, but I also believe that just generally our practice of learning Torah, um, whether it's directly on topic or not, is a kind of um, is a kind of a, a force of, of, of elevation and clarification and um, bettering ourselves so that we can so that we can better the world. So um, so what 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 I what I want to do is a little bit of like not directly thinking about um the issue at hand but sort of tangentially um although the truth is you know what we'll look at today is is going to be is is going to be more than tangential but i also just want to um you know to dedicate our learning to um to bringing some kind of comfort and wisdom and understanding and healing uh to the world so yeah okay let's say blessing we'll get started Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshanu v'mitzvotav etzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Okay, so here's 
here's where um, I started. I started in you know this week in kind of frustration, uh, even before the, the the terrible news of the week, because uh, what we have this week is quite a frustrating parsha in all kinds of ways. We are reading this week the last parsha in in, in the book of Leviticus. That's parsha Bechukotai, and uh, Bechukotai is a very difficult parsha in many ways. Um, it is, uh, it's usually read with Parshat Behar. We looked at that last week and Parshat Behar is a kind of a celebratory, it's the Jubilee mostly, um, short, short Parsha. And that's why they're both put together. And actually some of the commentators think that they actually are just one Parsha. And we, it's, it's the breaking up that we do rather than the putting them together. But when they are alone as they are, um, Parshat Bechukotai is a, is a tough one on its own. First of all, it, it, well, let me say, second of all, it's basically two chapters. Chapter 27 is the end, the last chapter of Leviticus, and it just seems like it's like, oh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, miscellaneous. It has like some tithing laws and some, um, some like, you know, monetary evaluation, like stuff that's not, doesn't feel like, oh, this is how we wrap up the, the priestly book. Um, uh, but it's chapter 26 that is that is really unsettling. And chapter 26 is not miscellaneous. It's a very focused chapter, but the focus is, is searing. Um, it is what's known as the tochacha, which means the rebuke, the great rebuke. Um, there are a couple of sections in the Torah that are that are, that have these this heavy list of curses, but this is really, this is the main, the main tochacha and the and the and, and the harshest one in part because it comes straight from God. And tw chapter 26 is uh, starts with a few little blessings. Um, if you're good, Bechukotai is in my, um, in my ways or in my, my laws. If you, if you go in my ways or in my laws, says God, says the Torah, then you will be blessed in the following few ways, names of few ways, and then very quickly. But if you don't, you will be cursed in and just a massive list of really, really like disturbing stuff. I mean, um, I, I quoted this in the in the podcast this week. Maybe you can um, put that in for us, Vera. But the uh, the one of the, there's 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 the first mention of a line that the prophets will pick up on, which is that you will eat the flesh of your of your sons and daughters. Like you'll go get so hungry that you'll eat your own children. I mean, what that even, what kind of God? What kind of? I mean, it's a, it's a disturbing stuff no doubt, and we can think a little bit about that together. But it's, you know, I wasn't sure what to focus on. And, you know, just the general question of, you know, how can God want our suffering is a big one, but it's so big that I don't know what to do with it. And then some of the specific imagery is really, there's really interesting stuff in there, but what does it mean that the punishments will be sevenfold? Or what is it? We could focus on these things, but first of all, it would be, um, heavy and kind of miserable, but also I don't I didn't know exactly what to do with it. And I kept looking, I I was frustrated and I kept looking at the at the chapter and I kept looking at the chapter and I kept looking at the chapter. And then, and maybe because of what had happened, although I didn't make that conscious connection, then I noticed something. I noticed that there is a key word in this chapter. Uh, what what Martin Buber called like a, a leitwort, like a, a recurring word that 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 is is popping up again and again, and, and seems to create a kind of a like a a, a theme word for the chapter, and um, and that word I'll I'll, I'll show you now. Um, 
here in the chat, I'm going to put the source sheet and we're going to look at um, we're going to look at this uh, chapter. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to just see how the word that keeps popping up throughout the chapter is the word cherev, which means sword. Okay, so let's just take a look at how it appears and how, above all, how often it appears. So here we are. And this is the chapter. This is like all the curses. There's just a lot of terrible stuff. But as I said, um, it starts with blessings. So here's the, this is the, the name of, of our Parsha, Bechukotai, which they're translating here as laws or rules or ways. But im Bechukotai Telechu, if you follow my laws, and observe and faithfully observe my commandments. Then here comes the blessing. I will grant you rains in their season. This is like the same kind of language that we see in the Shema. So the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. Lots of agricultural stuff. And you'll also dwell securely. You'll dwell securely in your land. Starting to think about, as last week's Parsha did, the moving into the land, the land of Canaan, the land that will be the land of Israel, and what, what, what will it be like there? I will, and this is, this, is, this is a big deal, this line, I will grant peace in the land, and you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. I will, and this some of this stuff is miraculous. I, you shall... Um, I will give the land respite from, from vicious beasts, and here's the first mention. And no sword shall cross your land. No sword shall cross your land. Okay. Now, out of context, you might say, what do you mean a sword? Just what, what sword? But probably some of you already have a feel for this, but even within this chapter, we can see to, to make reference to the sword is to make a common reference. And the sword means more the sword in, in biblical language and then in rabbinic language is, is a word that recurs throughout and means more than just a sword. And, and it means, um, well, we'll soon see, but it, but it is a symbol for, um, for violence and for um, destruction and destruction um, by, by attackers. Okay, so we'll, we'll flesh this out a little bit more, but it, it isn't just, uh, there'll be no like actual sword. It isn't just a, 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 an obscure reference, but one that, um, that we've seen already. We'll look at some of the other places, but for now, um, just, you know, just a, a, a literary gaze at this chapter. Let's just take a look for a second at how many times this word appears because once you see it, it's quite striking, and I, I I went and looked it up, and it is indeed there's there's no no other chapter in all of the Torah that has has this word um, in such abundance. There's no other chapter. It's a word which appears off, often enough, but it's not like this. So take a look here, just to see the, as we scroll through this chapter, this pop up again. Um, okay, so that that was the first mention. No sword shall cross your land. Your army shall give this, we're still in the blessings here. Your army shall give chase to your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. So the vowelization can be different depending on where it's placed, but okay. That was two verses in a row. And here's another verse. Five of you shall give chase to a hundred 
this is like the kind of stuff that I was wondering, should we try to explore this line that the imagery here is quite like strange and, 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 and intricate, but okay, we're, we're not gonna get lost in that. Five of you shall get, give chase to a hundred. Um, and a hundred of you shall give chase to 10,000. Seems like if you do the right thing, you'll be able to win uh, uh, unexpected victories, so more than, you're, than you would seem capable of. And finally, your em enemies, once again, shall fall before you by the sword. Here's the third mention. Okay. Then, as I said, just a few more blessings here. I am the eternal, your God. But if you, here's where things get bad right here. If you do, if you do not obey me, and if you do not observe all these commandments, if you re reject my laws and spurn my rules so that you do not observe my commandments and you break my covenant, that's the real concern here. You break, uh, you break my covenant. In turn, I will do this to you. And the language here, I said, you know, we could have had a whole class just wondering why God is so vicious, but I, then, then I in turn will do this to you. I will wreak misery upon you. And here comes the misery, consumption and fever, which caused the eyes to pine and the body to languish. You shall sow your seed to no purpose for your enemies shall eat it. Okay, so it, it goes on. I'll set my face against you. I'll discipline you sevenfold. I'll make your skies like iron and the earth like copper. That's like an interesting image, but um, there's again, agricultural stuff. And if you keep remaining hostile to me, I'll go on smiting you sevenfold. I'll loose wild beasts against you. And, and if these things fail to discipline you for me and I'll remain hostile to you, but here we go again, check, verse 25. I will bring a sword against you. I will bring a sword against you to wreak vengeance for the covenant. I will bring upon you a sword. Right? Because you have, in, in revenge for your violation of the covenant. And uh, there's, that was the fourth mention so far in the chapter. And it, further down, it continues, and you I will scatter among the nations and I will unsheath the sword against you. Here is the fifth mention. And uh, here's the sixth mention. This is one of the most famous lines. There's a beautiful book um, named after this phrase, the sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. A driven leaf, that's a, that's a book I recommend by, what's his name, Milton Friedman, I think, um, Rabbi, uh, a, a conservative 20th century rabbi, fleeing as though from the sword. The sound of drivenly shall put them to flight, fleeing as though from the sword. There it is again, sixth time. They shall fall, though none pursues. With no one pursuing, they shall stumble over one another as before the sword. And you shall not be able to stand ground to your enemies, but shall perish among the nations, and the land of your enemies shall consume you. So, Terrible, terrible, terrible stuff. But I, but I, I hope you're also just struck by the the repetition, the sword, the sword, the sword, the sword. Okay, so we're soon going to think about um, what what that might mean, what what it might mean to to bang away again and again at this image. But just one more thing to make the 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 writing um, and and the and the deliberate um, uh, uh, motif in the writing even even more pronounced. There are seven mentions of the sword, but there are also 
two more words with that same root because the word for sword is cherev, and the word, I bolded it in the, in the Hebrew, but not the English, the word for destruction, um, uh, uh, I will lay your cities in ruin. Ruin is the way they're translating it here. And the word for ruin or destruction is charva or charava. Okay. I will put your cities to ruin. And here in verse 33, we actually have both the words in the same verse. I will unsheath the sword against you and your land shall become desolation and your cities are ruin. So here you have varikoti achrehem charevs, the sword, varechem you charba. Okay, so that's that's with those two, that's nine times in this chapter, again and again with the sword, with the sword, with the sword, with the sword. Okay. Um, now I, so that already is just as a, as a, as a point of literature is worth reflecting on. And in some ways I could just turn to you and say, what do you make a, why is this such a prominent image? But I don't think we yet know exactly what to do with it because, okay, great. So the word sword is there a lot. What does the word sword mean? What is the context? And I've already alluded to it, that it isn't just a sword, but it is a kind of, um, a kind of reference point for battle and attack and sometimes even legions or armies, but to give one very vivid example of it. So we have it in our minds as we begin to think about what it means to, re to, to re recur back to this image. Um, there are many places that we could look in the Torah, but um, one of the fir first places where we see people, it's usually translated put to the sword, put to the sword is in the story uh, of, the, of the assault of Dina, um, Jacob's daughter Dina, and the revenge um, that her brothers um, Shimon and Levi take upon Shem, the town um, where she was, um, the town whose, I don't know, prince or whose kind of uh, chief family um, had taken her and and afflicted her, uh, often we presume raped her. Okay, so uh, here's just an example, so so that we can um, so we can think about what it means for for this word to be used in context. So on the third day, when they were in pain, they asked everybody in the town to circumcise themselves as a way of creating a covenant. But it was a it was a it was a, it was, a, it was a, just a scheme. It was a trap. And then Shimon and Levi, two of Jacob's sons, brothers of Dina, um, each took his sword, Ish Harvo, a man and his sword. Each took his sword and they came safely into the city and slew all the males, killed all the males, Argu Kol Zachar. Okay. And they put, here's that phrase, putting to the sword. They put Hamor and his son Shem to the sword took Dina out of Shem's house and went away. And the language here is they took Hamor and his son Shem and they killed them lefi charev. And this is a common phrase, put them to the sword. But literally this word means um, mouth, mouth, lefi charev. And it's, it's one way of describing the blade of the sword. A sword has two mouths or two blades, right? So put them to literally to the, bl to the blade of the sword. Okay, so that is, that is the 
cl classic image of the sword, putting people to the sword, okay? And, um, and that, that was the great weapon of war in those days. So that, that should be in some ways straightforward enough. So I, well, I, I, I'm, I'm soon gonna look at, at how our, our sages and our tradition reflects on this image, but I'd love to just hear you reflect on it a little bit first. What do you see here as we moved through that chapter and, 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 and heard those repeated references to the sword, the sword which your enemies might fall upon or the sword which you might fall upon, the sword which might be removed from your land or the sword which might be um, brought back into your land. Okay, so, so, so let's, let's start just with the interpreters in this group. So Leah Matsui. Yeah, um, I think you gave us a great hint when you said the weapon, the tremendous weapon of war. I think we have two kinds of swords going on here. One sword that if we obey the covenant, follow the Brit, we can use to make the land fertile, which is the plow. And you don't follow the rules. You don't turn your, you, I mean, we have that in Isaiah, turn our swords into plowshares for the great peace. But here, I think there's a contrast between the sword that Hashem can use against us if we are disobedient or the sword that we are allowed to use, the great, the technological genius of the plow, which allowed for, allowed for us to eat and live and our population to really grow. Okay, that is, that is a wonderful analysis. Um, and Leah brings us uh, immediately to the end. This is actually the last source that I was going to show because it is um, the, the most, maybe most famous, one of the most prominent uses of the sword, and that is by Isaiah. And many of us know this. We sing songs to Lo Isa Goy El Goy Cherev. That's that word. Nation shall not take up Cherev, sword. So uh, this is the great vision of Isaiah um, that hopefully we'll end with today. But God will um, judge among the nations and arbitrate for the many peoples, and they shall beat their swords. There it is again into plowshares. Vechitu harvotam. Okay, and there's spears into pruning hooks. So, but what Leah's done here is to say, oh, the, the, the vision here is that the sword will finally disappear from the land, but also that you, there, there are other uses for metal, damn it. You know, they, they, there, there are other ways that this, this implement could be used for giving life and goodness unto the world. And you have fashioned a sword into an implement of, of death. So the vision for the future is use that, re, reforge that sword. But, but why I like this so much as a, as a piece of analysis, what Leah's given us, is that, uh, is that she picks up on the way that the good times, the blessing, it, uh, are the one in which we're using the things around us to cultivate the earth, the plow, the plow. That's what you should be doing. But when things go bad, when things go awry, you take those same you know, you imagine people with pitchforks. You take those same things and you they're suddenly, they're used differently. So blessing turned into curse with the same implement there. So that's a great, that's a great, a, a, a great first analysis there. Um, David Kurtz. So um, Hashem doesn't use a sword. Um, people use the sword. Um, angels use the sword. 
Um, so to me, it's, you know, God uses plagues, God opens the earth, that's how he, that's how he, he gets revenge, and that's how he shows his displeasure, it's the people that use the sword. So to me, it's a, it's a warning of this, of the natural law of how man will turn upon man if you don't, if you don't follow my plan. Good. Now, this is a really, this is a really impor important point and a good, and what will turn it into a question. Like, it's a good question because we have to wonder, like, who's wielding sword against whom? Because, first of all, in the time of peace, uh, you know, it's not exactly peace. Your enemies are still dying. Like, the blessing is that, like, you win, right? So that may not be the ultimate vision that Isaiah wants us to get to. But um, in the time of peace, your enemies are falling to the sword. And who who are they falling? They're falling before you. Okay, they'll fall before you. So I guess you're wielding the sword before them. You go out to battle and you just win, okay? Even though the, the line that is most... The closest to Isaiah is no sword shall cross your land. That's a good one. No sword shall cross your land. Okay, so we're heading towards some vision where there shouldn't be swords, but you're, you're wielding swords and you're winning. And then when we get to the curses, you know, David says rightly, um, God doesn't wield the sword. Angels wield, wield swords and people wield swords against one another. But in this case, look who's speaking, right? Ch verse 25 there. I will bring a sword against you. Now, David's interpretation can still work, but then David would have to understand this to mean, I will, I will release your enemies against you. I will send them to you. And that's, that's right. There are, it does seem like, um, like part of what God is going to allow for is for you're scattered among the nations. There are other people, but again, the language is an, I will unsheath the sword against you. Right. Um, okay. So, who's 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 sword to whose um, um, sword um, do 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 we fear? Who who's who's going to wield this sword against us? The 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 easiest, like most straightforward understanding of it is either you'll win against your enemies or they'll win win against you. But the and and that's right. But the actual literal understanding of the verses is that God will wield a sword against you. So we have to wonder what the heck that might mean. Okay, um, Wayne, slab it. Um, I guess if I was putting together a scrapbook of God-fearing examples, this Torah portion would be in it because it's pretty severe. And I think certainly the, the think of a sword, a sword is pretty much a one-way weapon. You, you stab someone, they're dead. They're most likely, especially back then, they didn't have urgent care, they didn't have emergency rooms, you, you, you probably bled to death. So this was an example I thought of God injecting the fear that this Torah portion is trying to do and to say, and if you commit these sins, if you don't do, if you don't worship me, then really bad things are going to happen and it's not going to be pleasant. Yeah. 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 Like, and in that sense, God does unleash the sword, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, let's take a couple more thoughts here. Um, let's hear from um, Noah and then Hal and Kathy. And then I see other hands coming up and we'll continue to process. I wanna make sure we see some other material, but, um, but I'll, I'll, I'll continue to move through. Um, but Noah Pollock. Yeah, this sword image just 
laying up above our heads, I'm just immediately reminded of the sort of Damocles from Greek mythology that this sword is just staying there based on decision making, whether a good decision or bad decision, but it's just a real moral question. What we have these choices in front of us, this moral choice of following God's ways or not, and then getting thrown to the sword or to the wolves or to whatever bad thing is going to happen. But it's really just conflict, guns, war, all these things, thinking of respite of today. It's just all these bad things that are being laid in front of us that we can take them for good, like a scalpel to the doctors use that is very similar, or to cut thread in a sewing machine. Okay, okay, that's really, that's, that's really good uh, framing that you've given us, Noah, and you begin to take us into, as I said, we're doing kind of like a, like a kind of, like a sideways analysis of, of, or reflection on and the matters of the day, right? A direct analysis of this passage, but so the, there, there are implications. And one of them, the Torah seems to be suggesting, is that the presence or absence of violence in the land, of weapons in the land, is a, is a consequence uh, of your good or bad behavior. Now, we may not like the idea of like, oh, you have to do what God says or else, like, but there's some larger framework that like, if you live righteously, you will see the weapons pass away from the land. And if you don't, they will, they will be everywhere. They will, they will multiply, right? So, you know, there are many, the, the, there are nine mentions of this, of this word form. Uh, three of them are at the beginning. And one of those is that is is an announcement that the sword will will pass from the land, right? Six of them are in that longer passage where it just like battering at you, right? Just again and again, the sword will be there again and again. So thinking about what it means to live in such a way as to as to pass the sword out of the land, or to live in such a way that brings on violence. Okay, great. Um, Hal uh, and or Kathy. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, what occurs to me is that the sword represents existential fear, uh, you know, because you have to remember, in most traditional societies, everybody didn't have access to a sword. The sword was the, you know, either, you know, God or, or the, uh, the elite uh, had the ability to wield a sword and other people just cowered in fear. Uh, about this. There was no National Sword Association advocating for the rights of everybody to have swords in, in ancient times. So I think, you know, the, the good, as you were saying, was an absence of sword and the punishment was uh, falling victim to violence inflicted uh, by, by the sword. But from, you know, from the point of view of ordinary people, 
this was beyond their means, beyond their station. Uh, this was something that posed uh, potentially an existential threat to them. Yeah, that's really interesting how, as, as often uh, is the case, giving us a little historical perspective. And I want to say that Hal is, on the one hand, absolutely right that the, the image of the sword in the Torah certainly, um, certainly ref is, is, a, is a symbol of power represents, you know, armies put people to the sword. And like, you know, gr like great warriors carry a sword. It isn't a common, everybody's walking around with the sword. And yet the, the Shimon and Levi story remind us that like, you know, there are, this, this would be a counter example to what Hal just said, that they, like, there are ways of just like, you take a sword and you just run into a village and just slaughter people. Right. So there's there's that fear as well. And I guess I I wonder also then if if part of the move away from some some time of peace is a move away from a time when swords are wielded by armies and uh, rulers um, to, to, to just sort of swords everywhere, you know, swords, just people marauding um, one another and you just you just don't know when the when the as as Noah put it the sword of Damocles will will fall over your head. Okay, um, keep those hands up. I will I will come back to them, and I think we're just going to see more and more reflections on this. Um, but I want to bring in I want to start to bring in the our commentators for today, our interpreters today. The most interesting um, and profound reflections um, I found in the earliest uh, sources. That is um, in the in the in the in what we call Chazal, the Chachmenu Zichronom Libracha, our sages, the sages responsible for for writing um, the Talmud or for speaking the Talmud, which was written down, um, and the Midrash, and the earlier before even the Middle Ages, like the, the first second centuries on through the eighth and ninth centuries, and um, and in particular, we're going to look at the Mishnah which I'll, I'll explain in a second. But before we do, um, uh, let's look at a piece of, 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 of late Midrash, um, just because it, it speaks directly. This is an actual commentary on our passage on chapter 26 of the book of Leviticus and a kind of uh, just a, an opportunity to see how our sages um, answered the same question that we're trying to answer. What, what is the what's the meaning of this of the of the sword imagery in this passage? And it's a beautiful piece from um, Tana Devei Eliyahu, which is a fairly late, as I said, midrash, um, uh, fairly late collection of rabbinic teachings. And this piece, which you know, another time we could look at in its entirety, it imagines all of the consequences that come from not following the Ten Commandments. So it goes through, if you don't follow, I am the Lord your God. If you don't follow, don't worship other gods. If you don't follow, don't take my name in vain. Um, and then um, when uh, it gets to um, the um, Sixth Commandment here, check this out. This is, this is, uh, this is how the, our sages um, used the chapter we just read. If you live by, if you fulfill the commandment of thou shalt not kill, lo tirzach, then no sword shall cross your land. That, that line early on, that's the, that's, that was the good line. 
If you live by thou shalt not kill, then no sword shall cross your land. If, however, you transgress the commandment, then later, then cite the other part of the chapter, then I will unsheath the sword against you. Harikoti achrechem cherev. So, okay, so there's a little, this is like a first pass here from our sages on well, how do I understand these curses? If you live by I, thou shalt not kill. Now, what, what, that, what does that mean to, to fulfill and live? It's like, I, I haven't killed anyone yet. So great, I guess I lived by that. But like, what, is that, what do you think that means? If you practice the principle of thou shalt not kill, then you'll be free of swords. And if you don't, then they will, they will pervade the land, right? Okay, so um, I'm gonna turn to, um, I wanna, like when I do this, where I ask a new question, I wanna give permission to people with their hands up to answer the old question, but we're now also reflecting on the connection between the, the, the ten, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and um, the sword as a consequence for that, or the sword as, as, a, as a reward or consequence for that. So let's turn now to Rabbi Zaki. Thank you. I've been seeing the sword as tongue and speech and how speech can kill. You're also in eye vision, distance with whoever you're speaking to. Just like with a sword, you're close to the person you might be jabbing. Mm -hmm. So if your speech is uh, respectful, great. If it is gonna kill, speech kills and it stays with you, stays with the recipient of that. So it might turn around that God will speak to us in harsh language because we have spoken in whatever way to others. And that is also how we're gonna go into the land. We have to be careful on how we treat others because it could be the sword of, from our mouth. That's interesting. Okay, that's interesting. Uh, really getting kind of like metaphorical here. What is it to, to slice and to cut and to damage others and what other implements could we use? And, and in some ways, um, Rabbi Zaki is just picking up on the, we noted this earlier, right? Uh, by the mouth of the sword. And that language of, of, of mouths and, and consumption and eating is indeed language that we use to signal destruction. I mean, uh, I think we noted this at the very last verse in this. Um, you shall be, you perish among the nations. And the land of your enemies shall consume you, literally eat you, right? So, so if destruction is consumption and a sword has a mouth, then like, what does it mean for a sword to come through with its mouth and, and consume you, right? Devour you, the sword as a kind, and, and if there's a, a mouth that's devouring, what, how else might we think of, of, a, of, a, of a, a form of human um, cons, consuming, human beings consuming one another, right? And so, one's tongue is the shape of a sword. Mm. When you think about the shape of the tongue, which enables us to speak, it's like the, the shape of a sword. Right, we sometimes say a forked tongue, but here it's like a, a knived tongue or a sordid tongue, yeah. Okay, great. Um, Alexandra Goldman. Hey, 
in um, in some uh, I was taught that in Kabbalah or in some Kabbalah that the sword is a often a symbol of personal transformation and of rebirth through the death through that infliction of the death of the sword the rebirth the transformation that then comes and this sort of links to Leah's comment about turning the swords into plowshares and also how you said that the section that you read at the beginning is uh, reminiscent of the Shema and I if my memory is correct there's a section and I don't know if it's after this or um, not connected in space of the Torah to this, but though the, it's connected to the Shema in that there's sort of the remedy for all these curses comes if you, and I'm, and I'm misquoting, um, but the essence of it as I understood it was if you find your way to love everything, that's your path back to God. And, um, and that, and that being part of the Shema, that uh, love, God, love, God is one, God is everything, with your heart and every fiber of your being. Um, not being very cogent, but this idea that when, like, the sword is a symbol of personal transformation, and that when we heal our own anger, there's less anger in the world. Um, my friend, said that to me the other day I thought it was very beautiful and poignant like that this is um so one way to look at this is as a symbol of a path to personal transformation a path back to God a sort of a map as to how to deal with the struggle and the strife is to transform it into use that sword to transform ourselves into more loving beings Okay, to regain great. So, our connection with God. So, so the, a lot of a lot of um, folks that the, these last two comments um, both picking up on human behavior, right? Which is um, uh, which is Alexandra's right to to locate this sword imagery in a very um, very explicit discussion. The point of we call this section the tochacha, the rebuke by the way, rebuke also is something that comes from the mouth, right? So from God's mouth to, to ours, the, the point of the rebuke is to say, be, you know, be good people and, and act in, in, in accordance with these principles or else. And so when you are, when you have fallen, when you have, when you have, um, when you have gotten to a place where you've brought the sword into the land, Alexandra says, then the message must be, you must go back. You must start re-transforming. Like you have to get back to that place where you are, are acting um, in, in, in accordance with these, with these principles of, of these divine principles of justice in order to, to turn the sword, right? To, to, to flip the sword, to, to get back to the, to the image of the sword um, departing from the land, or I must admit, or your sword winning and not theirs. But like a lot of the reflections so far have been rooting the sword imagery in, embedding it in the chapter, which imagines that the sword comes from all kinds of, of bad, of your own bad behavior. And then the sword pops up and you know, 
just to begin a little bit to, to speak out explicitly what I've been thinking about all week, what, what bad behaviors, what, what mistakes, what, what principles have we ceased to follow in this land that has allowed the sword, that has allowed the weapon, that has allowed like the implement of war to be so present in the land? What is it that we have, have failed to do? And I, and I, I certainly, you know, anyway, okay. I, I'm not gonna launch into a sermon right here. Um, okay, uh, let's, let's, let's press a little bit forward. We have now 15 minutes and I wanna see a couple of really key sources um, that we just saw one, the first kind of first um, rabbinic reflection on this passage, which is to say, thou shalt not kill. And I still haven't, you know, we still haven't fully processed that, but what does it mean to say, if you don't follow the commandment of thou shalt not kill, there will be swords everywhere, right? So uh, that idea of like what it, what it is that brings about the sword. Okay, so both of these, um, Mishnayot are reflecting on that, on what, well, how the sword comes about. And it's actually, it's, oh, I say Mishnayot. So the Mishnah is the earliest layer of rabbinic um, teaching. It is, uh, it is put together in, in, the, in the second century. And, um, and it's, you know, it's striking then that you find reflections on Cherev, on the sword, um, again and again, in not just like here and there in the Talmud, this vast corpus of rabbinic discussion, but in the Mishnah itself, in the code of the Mishnah. And the first place that um, I want to take us is to a place that I became intimately uh, 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 um, familiar with at the beginning of the pandemic, which is um, the, um, the Mishnah in Ta'anit, Tanit, which is a Mishnah that discusses when we fast and, uh, and call up, Tanit means fast. When do we fast and call out to God? For what great crises do we call out to God? The, the main one, the one that it starts with is the need for rain. Like we might be fasting in order to, to bring down the rains. Um, but then in the third chapter, we start talking about other reasons why we might call for a public fast. And the reason that I, I, I spent so much time with it a few years ago is because um, Dever, a plague is one of those. When there is a great sickness in the land, there, there's a, there is, they shut down the shops. I mean, it was very striking at the beginning of COVID. I would encourage you to go look at, uh, at, uh, at Mishnatani chapter three. They closed down the shops and, and notably they sound the alarm, Matri'in. They, they, it's like the same language of trua, like sounding the shofar blast. There's a plague in the land. Okay, so the Mishnah goes on to ask, for what else do we sound the alarm? And there are various categories for sounding the alarm, um, but one of them in the fifth Mishnah here includes the cherev. So take take a look. Um, for the following calamities, al elu matriin b'chomakom, they sound the alarm in every place. Most of these are agricultural for blight and mildew. These are all kind of like attempts at translation, but shidapon and yerakon. And that's seemingly the drying up of crops and the overwatering of crops, right? Or something like that. The, the oh, too much uh, 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 moisture, not enough moisture. If the, okay, so agricultural reasons, and that's not surprising because it's rain that we were praying for after all. 
For locusts and other swarms of insects, also not also not surprising, right? The crops are being uh, uh, eaten up by 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 locusts, so sound the alarm. For dangerous beasts, chayara, uh, and that we saw dangerous beasts actually in our in our chapter, right? That God would loose dangerous beasts upon the land. This is both an agricultural concern, but more just like um, the, the the rabbis worry about lions, you know, roaming around the land, right? Or other wild beasts. This was a actually one of the plagues, right? It was the release of wild, you know, plagues in Egypt. Okay, and for the sword, and for the sword, and we now have a sense of what that might mean. What does it mean? that the sword is coming into your land, that people are being put to the sword, that the attack of the sword, of some, some, some invasion, right? But here's the part that I want us to think about for a minute. Why is the alarm sounded? Why are these such catastrophes? And the alarm is sounded because these are calamities that spread. They're calamities that spread. The problem with these things is that they are they are big problems, but also because we worry that these crop diseases, these this like infiltration of, of anything from locusts to, to, um, to lions, it spreads. Right? So what does it mean to think of the sword as something that it's a, it's a, it's a calamity that, that spreads, that spreads throughout the land, okay? Um, let's let's turn to Agnes, who just raised her hand at, at directly to this question. So I think um, I'll start there, and then I'll circle back to folks who have had their hands up. Well, it's so fascinating to put that the sword in the context of that, because I was thinking about sword as a force of destruction compared to like fire or flood. These are things that are just like totalizing stuff that just swallows. And a sword is so focused on intention. Like you don't you sort of swing a sword at something, and it's such a seems like such a directed and specific form of violence, but so much of the original passage is about pursuing and not being, not overtaking versus overtaking and fleeing when there's no actual, actually no sword. So it feels like the kind of sword that we're talking about here is a sword where that where like there's a mismatch between intention and outcome, where there's like some some anger that 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 overspills and and seeks outlet in this kind of violence, but doesn't land with the precision of justice. There's like some fear that that like sends us running wherever we are, like the fear that, that dominates our consciousness when there's no actual specific cause for it. And so it feels like there's some, the reason when sword spreads, it seems to me it would be about when there's this mismatch between intention and result. And I, because sword seems like it's also an imagery for justice where there's like a very specific slicing, I don't know, there's something there. It's, yeah, that's, that's a very, I, that's very helpful language that you're using. It's, it's like, the, the mismatch between your attempt at precision and the way that it just spills over. There's something about this violence. This is not a murder. This is not an execution. This is like, it's spreading. It like, there's, a, there's it's, it's, it, you can't contain it. Their violence is just sort of, again, marauding through the streets, through the land there. You have to be careful because it could strike you at any time because it's not, it's not precise, it's not contained, it's just, it's like, like wild beasts, it's just roaming, right? And that's the kind of violence that we're worried about is the kind that, you know, the kind we're worried about in our society that could like pop up at any moment, anywhere you are, you know? Um, yeah, like I, I'm, 
I'm teaching this class from um from a school, from a from an elementary school, right? Like somebody let me use their office in an elementary school. Like these are the places that we're worried about violence spilling over. This is not like on the battleground, you know. This is anywhere. This is anywhere. Okay, um, Matt Silverstein. Just yeah, there. Um, what's been on my mind is that swords have are used by there's an arm and a hand involved and in in the past god's arm and hand was protecting mm -hmm. and and that there's the contrast between the protection of an of an arm and and a use of a sword in there and then i was also thinking that god when we see him act doesn't use swords god uses brimstone god uses floods God uses those are more, but this is a thing that's that's held, that's specifically used. It's a tool that does that because of the hand, and mm -hmm. therefore intention that connects directly to what Agnes was saying. But Agnes said it first, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Well, look at look. I, I what I love about what you're you're saying distinctly is that we talk about the hand of God. But when God doesn't interact with God's hand, whatever that that's a metaphor, obviously, you know, but like, but now there's a there's a tool in between. There's something that that hand seizes and it's like there's a way in which like the sword and therefore, you know, violence in the land is is a kind of intermediary, you know, is a kind of a a secondary force that like God is, I mean, disturbingly, I don't mean to wash this away, God is summoning and using, but it's like that kind of destruction, we are, we are worried that God will unleash it, we, God is, is threatening it, but it will take place in, in the, in the form of a secondary tool, that kind of destruction happens through human beings, right? The greatest horrors in our history are the ones that we wonder why God didn't stop, surely, but they, they are the ones that human beings have perpetrated on one another, right? Like the hurricane might be the hand of God, but the violence in the land is the, is the sword, right? The sword of God. And maybe God's behind it somehow. And maybe God, you know, you know these are disturbing theological questions, but it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a step in between. Okay, I just have a few minutes left and I hope to, to eventually reach Payam and Ariella, um, but I wanna introduce one more image. And this one also from the Mishnah is a bit of a twist, a twist on, um, on, the, on the why. Why does the sword come into the land? Just talking about how the sword comes into the land um, and, um, and um, what it is about our behavior that might cause this. Or when we say that, uh, you know, if you don't fulfill the mitzvah, of thou shalt not kill, then the sword comes in. Well, that makes sense. But this one, this, this take on it is not uh, so, so intuitive. Um, and it comes from, it's the Mishnah again, but this Mishnah is Pirkei Avot. And actually we study Pirkei Avot during this time between Passover and, um, and Shavuot. And actually this is this week's chapter, chapter five. So fortuitous. Um, but the, the Mishnah mentions again the sword and asks the question, what brings the sword into the land? 
And I think you'd be surprised given what we've been saying before. So the Mishnah starts by asking, you know, seven punishments come into the world for seven categories of transgression. Like, what is it that might cause um, a famine? Well, when some give tithes and others do not give tithes, a famine from drought comes. Um, some go hungry and others are satisfied. So there's a kind of like relationship. If you're not tithing, then that's going to affect agriculture and, and feeding other people, right? Um, Let's see, pestilence comes into the world for sins punishable by death according to the Torah. Um, and for the, oh, and for the neglect of the law regarding the fruits of the sabbatical year. So again, you're not attending to the land. So there's like land, a lot of land-based focus. We've seen that before. But the sword, cherev, and it's a funny phrase. If we hadn't been studying for an hour, it would, it would seem like an odd phrase. Cherev balolam, the sword comes into the world. So why does the sword come into the world? And the Mishnah says the sword comes into the world al inui hadin for the delay of judgment, the delay of judgment or justice or adjudicating or rendering the law, the delay of judgment, and for the perversion of judgment, al ivutadin, the perversion of justice, the perversion of the law, and. And because of those who teach Torah not in accordance with the, acceptance of the accepted law, they teach it wrong. They teach it the incorrectly, not the way that it should be practiced. So all of these, the delay of judge, ju justice and judgment, the perversion of justice and judgment, and the misteaching, the incorrect teaching of, of the law, of the Torah, that's what brings the sword into the land. Okay, so what does that mean? Why? Why is it that, that the perversion of, or the delay or the mangling of, of law and, and legal adjudication and justice brings the sword into the land? So not fair, I'm now gonna call on Payam who's had his hand up for other thoughts, but I wonder if you can speak to some of that as well, Payam. I'm just having a hard time with a, with a, with a lot of this and I find it hypocritical. Because mm. God's commandment isn't thou shalt not kill, it's thou shalt not kill in vain. Mm. And, you know, when you look at the Torah, God gives commandments of killing people and he gets mad at the Jewish people for not killing enough of them and showing mercy. So, I mean, I don't see in the Torah, you know, a world where God's commandment is peace. It's, as this one said, almost to use the sword, but use it in the, in the way that God commands it. And I just find, okay. you know, and I have a problem That's a, kind of like condemning people for using the sword when there is no absence of the sword anywhere in the Torah, whether it be good or bad. Okay, this is, this is really good. That's actually an important, useful reflection here. Apayam says, wait a minute now, this, this Torah is not a Torah, which like, it's not, it hasn't even caught up to Isaiah yet. It doesn't imagine that the world will be wholly free of violence. It's a Torah which has laws of war and executions, right? Is, is it real? Like, but remember, we're talking about a certain kind of spreading violence. So I think Payam's um, perplexity is actually an answer to the question, which is maybe the idea is there will be some like controlled violence in this land. There will be punishments or there will be wars. We live in a, in, a, in, a, in a reality where we try to contain, but there is a certain amount of even state mandated violence. But 
there are ways to legislate and think about and order society around that so that it is not just a spreading catastrophe of violence. And then there is a mangling of that system, a, a kind of a misuse of the laws of execution or of war or of um, or of or of, or of gun permits or of you know that 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 allow for a you know are we all you know um, uh, people who think that that hunters shouldn't have guns I don't know we have different opinions on that but is there is there a law that is that is so mangled that now everyone can have a gun and now violence is spreading throughout the land. There's a balancing act there that Payam's pointing to that maybe the Torah is not just saying like, let's all live in peace forever, but actually let's, let's be careful about how we legislate in this land so as to, um, so as to, to keep violence contained. But that's one pass at it. Um, all right, Ariella, very quick. I, you've had your hand up patiently for a long time. I wanna just give you the last word here. I uh, can't hear you. Well, to me, when I think, it's like now you can be afraid to go to show. You're afraid to go to the movie theater. People are afraid to send the, their children to school. It gets to a point that fear comes into play here as well. Mm. And, and, and I mean, it's, I think, there is a time and a place for everything, and then things get out of hand. Okay, good. I want to I want to place these comments. I'm gonna stack them on top of Payam's comments, and to remind us that what we're talking about here, what we've been talking about the whole time, Ariella reminds us, is not exactly violence, the presence of violence, but terror, terror, terrifying violence, unpredictable any moment could explode, any building could have a shooter, any time you go out to the movies, you have to, I mean, I, I hate to terrify us, but we should be terrified because that's what we're dealing with is the sword is just careening through the land, careening through the land. And is, are there laws that could stop this? Are there laws that could protect us? Are there laws that could not necessarily bring us to the vision of Isaiah? Maybe we're not there yet, but are there laws that could contain the violence so that it wasn't just unregulated, unmitigated terror, terror. Okay, the last thing that I want um, uh, to, uh, to read is just, uh, just uh, the first mention of, of, of the sword in the Torah. The very first sword is, you know, I like to do the, where was this word first used? Because I think that that does some defining and the first mention of the sword in the Torah, um, is is there at the exile from from the Garden of Eden? Right. So the Eternal God banished them from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which it was taken. Adam and Eve have been cast out. Humanity was driven out. And east of the Garden of Eden, Steinbeck, Steinbeck uh, borrows that phrase. Were stationed the the Kruvim and the fiery ever turning sword, the fiery ever turning sword, to guard the way to the tree of life. The sword is what blocks us from the Garden of Eden, and the sword is what blocks us from the tree of life, from the tree of life. And the tree of life for us in this tradition is the source of life and wisdom. We refer to the Torah as the tree of life. The Torah is the tree of life. So you see how it works when we teach Torah incorrectly, when we mangle the law, when we delay the law, 
then the sword comes into the world and the sword then blocks us from the Torah. The sword then keeps us from wisdom, keeps us from justice, and it becomes an endless, and, 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 and this is the word, and a vicious, vicious cycle. So I, I, I just close with the, with the prayer of Isaiah that, that, we, uh, that we beat our swords into, into plowshares and, um, and, um, and that this nation um, shall not know war anymore, um, but that most of all, this nation will, will stop lifting the sword up against one another. So see you next week. Okay, that's it. A taste of our weekly Parsha class. Uh, I want to thank everyone who came to the class, some of whose voices you may have heard today, uh, some you didn't because the podcast has been edited. So just want to thank everybody. Um, and speaking of editing, I want to thank also our uh, editor, Vera Blossom, for her great work. If you'd like to join our class sometime and come and, and join our, our circle of, of Torah geeks, you can find us uh, again, Thursdays, 12 p.m. online at ikar.org. That's I-K-A-R.org. And, uh, and if you go to the calendar, uh, then you can find a Zoom link and just click in. And, um, and in the section uh, on the website uh, that, that uh, we keep our classes, you can, if you click on Parsha Study, you'll find all of our archived classes and source sheets and everything we discussed there. So if you're looking for a regular Parsha class, I'd love to see you. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, I will talk to you next week. 